This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. And today we're joined by both a guest and a guest co-host. I'm Devin Michelle Bunton. I'm the guest co-host, and I'm a writer and teacher at the Urban Studies and Planning Department at MIT. I'm Allison Schertzer. I'm an associate professor of economics at the University of Pittsburgh, and I'm delighted to be here as your guest speaker. Thanks for joining us, Devin and Allison. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Today, we're going to be talking about a recent paper by Allison and three of her co-authors, Protoy Akbar, CJ Lee, and Randy Walsh, called Racial Segregation in Housing Markets and the Erosion of Black Wealth. What happened to northern U.S. cities and neighborhoods during the Great Migration? And what were the effects of housing market segregation in northern cities on African-American welfare? I think this is a great paper. I'm really happy to feature it on the show. I think a main contribution of the paper is to provide an incredibly detailed analysis of house prices and rents for city blocks as Blacks arrived in northern U.S. cities and neighborhoods in the 1930s. So, Allison, we're delighted to have you on today to discuss this paper. Can you describe a little bit of the context of your paper and what your main findings were? Sure. Thanks, Jeff. So, in this paper, we are, as Jess said, seeing what happens when city blocks in the 1930s that had formerly been occupied by all white residents experienced racial transition as part of the great migration of African-Americans from the South to Northern cities. What makes this paper possible is that the United States Census began asking about home values and contract rents in 1930, and then they did it again in 1940. So we're able to look at the same address at the beginning of the decade and the end of the decade and see what happened to the price of both owned and rented housing on blocks that stayed white versus experienced racial transition and became occupied by African-Americans. The really neat, although ultimately sad, finding of our paper is that racial transition was associated with a divergence of the price of owned and rented housing. In particular, rents tended to go up by actually quite a lot on blocks that transitioned from white to black. At the same time, home values fell by quite a bit. And this is particularly sad because blacks tended to have to outbid whites in order to move onto a block for the first time. So African-Americans who were buying a home had to pay high prices to enter a formerly all-white block. And then afterwards, they would see the value of their house fall. So in the paper, we argue that this has really important implications for understanding racial wealth gaps because there was sort of no way to escape these disadvantageous price dynamics in the housing market. You could move to the North to get a job that paid much better than you would be paid in the South, but then you had to deal with these segregated housing market dynamics that would be unambiguously poor uh, for accumulating wealth. Right. The centerpiece of the paper really is this finding of elevated rents and depressed housing prices on these blocks that are experiencing a racial transition. And of course, that's you know made possible by this incredible data work that you and your co-authors put together, going through the census microdata and tracking the addresses over time. And I think that that's an incredible achievement. Can we talk a little bit just about the facts in the data that you're able to uncover as a result of this new data effort? So I think that the sort of big fact of the paper that I don't believe was, was ever really empirically documented before 
is that racial transition would have different impacts on rented and owned housing. And to think of a, a famous paper in this literature, the Cutler, Glazer, Victor paper, the rise and fall of the American ghetto, that they would have argued that between 1940 and 1970, say, that Black households would be facing a lot of segregation in housing markets, and the segregation would sort of artificially constrain their housing supply. And so this would cause them to pay higher prices for the same housing. And then, you know, either in a different model or in their paper after 1970, that this sort of flips, whites move out to the suburbs, and there are barriers in the housing market for Blacks to follow. And so what you have is essentially whites paying a premium to avoid Black neighbors. And so this should cause Blacks to pay less for the same housing than whites. Empirically, it's actually really difficult to make that comparison, to actually compare the same house and see what a Black family would pay, the same house to see what a white family would pay. Because in general, Blacks have been relegated to the poorest neighborhoods of cities. There are all kinds of reasons why neighborhoods that have had Black residents for decades are going to be different in terms of the quality of the public goods, the quality of private investments. And so it's just really difficult to make that comparison, but also really important for understanding what's going on in the private housing market for understanding gaps in wealth by race. The important thing here is that we can look at exactly the same address, and we're just observing it a few years later when the race of the occupant changes. And so I think that's a really important fact that in this paper, we're able to make this sort of apples to apples comparison by, by, again, looking at the same address in neighborhoods that used to be all white. Yeah, that's great. This new microdata that you guys have digitized is able to sort of help you make new inferences about what's happening in cities around this time. So you find that Black families, when they were renting, played a premium of roughly 50% compared with white families living on similar blocks. But then when you look at African-American homeowners that are arriving, the first black family to arrive on a newly transitioning block pays something like a quarter more compared with white homeowners on the same block. What kind of framework are you thinking about for trying to interpret these facts? This is a really important question, something we were sort of puzzled about when we started working on this. Usually you think of a house as an asset that generates some kind of flow of payments. So if the value of that asset is falling, then in most models in economics, you would expect the rental price associated with that home to fall. And it's strange for a moment to think about a world in which an asset is losing value, but at the same time, people who are renting in these neighborhoods are actually paying higher rents. So the way that we reconcile these two sort of disparate findings in the owned and rented housing markets is by thinking about a capitalization model that incorporates depreciation and pessimistic investor expectations. So you can imagine if I am thinking about owning or, or buying or as would be more consistent with the historical context, keeping my home on this block while I go move to a whiter neighborhood and then renting it out. If I have these exceedingly pessimistic expectations about how the value of the home is going to fall in the future, we reconcile this by thinking about that depreciation. Actually, an investor would ask for higher rents in the short term to compensate themselves for the loss of the value in that asset over time. Maybe to make this concrete for non-economics listeners, might this be analogous to a vacation property? that is like on the edge of a cliff overlooking an ocean or something in, in time of climate change, it might be that the value of that property to buy has dropped because 
the market is pessimistic about its longevity. At the same time, if you want to rent it on Airbnb for the weekend, it could well command a premium. And it could even command more of a premium now if building such properties today is uneconomical or illegal. In other words, the possible for the temporal dimension to come in and explain some of the differences between demand for short-term, meaning rental, and for ownership in the long-term. Of course, I put it in a neutral way, something, in fact, a privileged way of renting a vacation home, but here something much more nefarious is going on. And, and so that's what I want to hear more about. So I, I guess the more nefarious part here would be you know, for thinking about like in Santa Monica, where these houses were built on a cliff and the cliff is just sort of slowly eroding. This is a pretty racially neutral reason to have pessimistic expectations about the value of that home. It's fairly inevitable that one day it's just going to fall into the ocean. But I think the most historically accurate way to think about this would be the fulfillment of pessimistic expectations on the part of these landlords who were either buying or renting out homes to Black families. So you expect that the value is going to fall. And so you don't care for the property, or as we often see, these enormous increases in occupancy in homes that are on blocks undergoing racial transition. So you take a house and you carve it up into three or four apartments, which increases the wear and tear on that building, far greater maintenance costs. And at the same time, sort of everyone in the market is together in believing that racial transition is going to erode their home values. This is just a taken as a fact by everyone who worked in real estate markets in the 20s, the 30s, and 40s that racial transition in a block would erode the value of those homes. But we're not the first to point out that this observation or this belief that racial transition is bad for home values is sort of inconsistent with the fact that Black families would outbid whites for the same house, which is precisely the economic mechanism that would set off racial transition. I had a question to follow up a little bit on that point. There's a couple of interesting findings around the house price, and I thought that maybe it'd be useful to hear exactly where those are coming from. So on the one hand, there's this finding of a price premium for rental, but there's also a price premium for Black families moving in, right, of 28%. For the first couple of families, basically. So the way that you observe that in the data is that you find neighborhoods that are 99% white with one Black family, and that Black family's house price is 20% higher. The follow-up finding that there's this decline of something like 10% in house prices, what baseline, I guess, is that relative to? Because on the one hand, you have this baseline of what this all-white neighborhood was. On the other hand, you have this baseline of this 28% premium. So I was just sort of curious how those pieces, I guess, all fit, fit together. So the, the fall of 10% as the neighborhood goes from you know 10% to 90% Black, that's relative to the original non-inflated baseline. It is an important caveat to this work is it is essentially cross-sectional. We are looking at the 1940 census and seeing as a control what the block looked like in 1930. So we're pretty confident that a block that's all white, except for maybe three, four, five percent black homeowners, they know exactly what their home is worth because they just bought it. But that's consistent with everything we know about housing markets during this time period that that neighborhood would have been in the process of racial transition. So, so they know when they're reporting to the census taker what their home was worth, we believe that they are correct. So 
originally I had wanted to call this paper about blockbusting, in which entrepreneurial real estate agents would try to take advantage of white racism and then use it against them by bringing a black family to a neighborhood, even having a mother push a baby carriage around and then going and knocking on doors and saying, the African-Americans are coming. You better get out now before your home loses all its value. And in fact, to the extent that there was any kind of public outcry about the racial dynamics that we're documenting in this paper, it was centered on the fact that whites then had to sell their home really quickly and perhaps at a loss in order to escape these dynamics. But, but then on the other hand, why was this happening? Because that original Black family trapped in the worst neighborhoods facing a lot of segregation-driven supply constraints had a higher willingness to pay than white families. And so what we're really trying to do in the paper is reconcile all these confusing and at times conflicting narratives from the history about who was willing to pay more and what were the implications for the value of the home in this asset model of the papers. So the way to think about it, the first arrival on a block that was going to undergo racial transition was far more likely to be a homeowner. So a Black family buying their home. So this family would be on average more economically privileged than the African-American renters who would come later. So they would actually have the money to buy a house. So they would pay at this high premium, this 25 to 30% premium over what this house had been worth when a white family owned it. How are they able to buy? Are they buying in a place where there isn't a racial covenant? Or are they buying post-1948 when racial restrictive covenants are no longer enforceable? We thought a lot about restrictive covenants because this paper is spanning the 1930s. And so restrictive covenants were legally enforceable until 1948. But the fact that you see across U.S. cities in the 20s and 30s, actually significant expansions of Black neighborhoods shows the extent to which the color line won't hold, even if you have restrictive covenants in place, if Black families are willing to outbid white families, right? So maybe you face some social costs, but if you can get a lot more money from a Black family, then you're going to sell to them, regardless of the presence of a professional blockbusting agent. And that's why we eventually moved away from that blockbusting framing, because this is just a question of arbitrage here. Allison, I would love to hear you expand on this point, which I think is a theme of the paper, a lot of the narrative history about this period emphasizes tools of collective action, like covenants, like neighborhood improvement associations. What do you see your study as contributing to that view? Yes, that's a theme of not just this paper, but of several papers that Randy Walsh and I have written together, studying the origins of segregation in American cities. The real theme of our paper is that to understand why segregation increased by so much over this period to understand the price dynamics in the housing market, you really need to keep track of what's going on in a private, uncoordinated market. So sure, you can have restrictive covenants, you can have neighborhood improvement associations that engaged in outright violence to try to deter Black entry into neighborhoods. But at the end of the day, to get these price dynamics, you don't actually need any of those things. You just need to have whites who are unwilling to have Black neighbors and would move out as soon as there was Black entry onto their block. And this Black entry would be associated with this, again, this, this premium, this higher willingness to pay because Blacks face so many constraints in the housing market. So once they move onto a block and the whites leave, then you're going to get this divergence in owned and rented housing. And this is completely does not rely on the existence 
of restrictive covenants. This has nothing to do with redlining. This is purely the outcome of what was going on in the private housing market. So a question that I have about that, there seems like in the background of that, the particular interaction that you're looking at is this one that is happening inside of this private housing market that is in many ways overcoming those institutions of segregation, right? In the sense that it is like you are literally documenting all white neighborhoods becoming partly and then, you know, in many cases later becoming all black. But that's sort of against this backdrop where those institutions of segregation have real bite in the city at large. And what I mean by that is that there's restriction of supply available for black families. And so I think about that if we think about a restriction in supply, we're moving up a demand curve and finding people with a higher willingness to pay. That seems like that's actually a crucial element of what takes place when you look at this particular place where there there is this interaction that you briefly brings together these two largely segregated markets where the conditions within each of those markets, on one side, you have this really extreme reduction in supply, and on the other side, you don't necessarily have that. Does that undercut this notion of those things don't matter, it's just about this market, or is it like, it's still those matter, but not in the direct way that we usually think about them? Yeah, I don't mean to say that they don't matter at all. It's also worth noting here that prices would have been higher in Black neighborhoods, you know, with these elevated rents, in part because there was so much Black immigration in the previous decade in the 20s. So the supply constraints are driven both by racism and discrimination in the housing market, but just also the fact that there are more Blacks in the city who moved in the previous decade. So we're necessarily studying the decade of the Depression here just because of when the census started asking about home values. So prices for everything are falling during this decade, and we're adjusting for that in our model. Again, this is another reason why this is a market-based phenomenon. You have a lot more Black families who are seeking housing. And yes, they are constrained somewhat to live in neighborhoods that already had Black residents, like when they moved to the city for the first time. Remember, this is the era of outright violence against Black families. So I'm not at all suggesting that that doesn't matter and that that didn't contribute to the initial The underlying willingness to outbid white families for housing, that is certainly an outgrowth of pre-existing discrimination and segregation in the housing market. So you mentioned the arbitrage aspect of the opportunity here from a developer standpoint, and that makes perfect sense, right? Covenants, though, have a quality where if they are not consistently enforced, uh, and the specifics of this vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but they can be essentially waived. People who could otherwise have claimed a benefit from them will be what's called a stopped from suing to to claim that benefit. But that takes time. The first time the house gets sold, right? If there is a restrictive covenant, neighbors might bring suit to try to argue that there's a violation of the covenant, the covenant runs to the neighbor and the neighbor has standing to sue. I know that's a little bit in the weeds on the law stuff, but I'm just curious if you came across nuances around the covenants that might be relevant. All the reading we've done about this, the restrictive covenants did not seem to be terribly effective at holding the color line when these enormous gaps existed between what whites would pay and what blacks would pay. So you could sue, right, because your neighbor sold his home to a black family, or you could just sell too. Again, I'm not arguing that restrictive covenants weren't important. There's work being done right now by the Minneapolis Fed trying to document the impact of restrictive covenants in the county. 
that Minneapolis is in Hennepin. So again, not arguing that that isn't important. We certainly haven't seen in our reading of the historical sources a lot of cases where these restrictive covenant lawsuits were filed. We have seen mentions of other attempts to use, I guess, social norms to hold the color line. So that is, in one case, we read that a white family sold their home to a black family, and then the neighbors, enraged, went to the white family's new neighborhood with the megaphone technology today and said, "Do you know that your neighbor sold his home to, you know, trying to shame them in their new location?" But again, they're just facing simple economics. The blacks who were entering these neighborhoods were just outbidding whites by quite a lot, and that's at the end of the day what really mattered for the expansions of the black neighborhoods and cities that you see everywhere in the 30s. And that's actually something that I view as like a big contribution of this is fleshing that point out that that gap is in willingness to pay is really real and really significant. And there's work on that in the historical literature. Arnold Hirsch makes that argument, making the second ghetto, and I don't have a question here, just my interjection. Uh, Randy, you'd be the... thrilled to hear this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was it... just all about the pioneer premium. He was like, we have three main results, and I have certainly come along to his way of thinking, as you can see from the current abstract. But yes, we initially weren't thinking about the pioneer premium, but it's it's very obvious in the data. If you look at the, if you are an economist here and you're into this stuff, Looking at the non-parametric graphs in the paper, you can really see the higher value for the first black families who bought on a block. Allison, I take the sort of larger point here that is that factors like redlining or racial restrictive covenants are not sufficient to explain all of the welfare effects or all of the outcomes of segregation and all of the welfare effects of segregation that individual preferences operating through market forces are contributing to the spatial segregation outcomes that we're seeing in this period and the resulting effects on welfare. Redlining can't explain the price dynamics that we're documenting in this paper. It's just too soon. And the FHA hasn't really gotten started with their insuring activities, at least in the cities that we're studying. This doesn't happen until later in the 40s. And it sounds like covenants can't either, right? Because they're just not playing a big enough role and they're not being followed. So the covenants could explain the dynamics that Devin was mentioning about why is there this pioneer premium for Black families? Why are they willing to outbid white families by 25 to 30%? And this is going to be driven by the underlying scarcity of housing that's available for Black families to buy. And restrictive covenants certainly would play a role in generating those supply pressures. I want to turn to the final part of your paper where you discuss the implications of these housing market factors for African-American wealth and welfare. Can you talk a little bit about that analysis? Sure. So we've spent a lot of time today actually talking about the home buyer side. So what's going on with owned housing, which is, of course, really interesting. But the vast majority of Black families in northern cities in the 1930s were renters. So by the time a block is majority Black, 80% of residents would be renting. And so this would be a pretty big increase in the renter share relative to when that block was all white. So if we're trying to think about the implications of these dynamics for Black wealth accumulation, it's actually more historically consistent to think about what's going on with renters. So why would 
a typical black man in the 20s say, move from the American South to a Northern city. Okay, get away from the terrible Jim Crow South, <laughs> number one. Number two would be to access the far higher wages for jobs in Northern cities relative to, to what a laborer could earn in the South. So there have been a ton of great papers in economics in the last 10 years, you know, including work by my advisor, Leah Bustan, or Marian Wanamaker and Bill Collins, Alara Deronencourt, all studying the movement of African-Americans from the South to the urban North. And the theme of these papers has really been higher wages, greater economic opportunity, whatever gaps we see closing in 1940, 1970 between Blacks and whites, a lot of this is going to be driven by internal migration to the North. So what we're doing at the end of the paper is trying to tie what's going on in the housing market to what's been well documented that's been going on in the labor market. So what we find is that the segregated housing markets and the higher rents that this requires from Black families ends up eating a huge part of the wage premium that's associated with moving from the South to the North. So all of these papers that you can think of about moving to opportunity and great migration that we really need to think about what's going on in housing markets whenever we think about people being able to move to opportunity. So just a non-technical summary would be if you annualize the rental premium that's associated with the block moving from white to black, that this is about 40% of the annual wage gain associated with moving from the South to a Northern city. Okay, so 40% of the reason why you move to the North, at least in terms of wages, is just going to disappear into these elevated rents that you can't even escape if you then buy a home, because then you face the pioneer premium or the loss of value of your house after you buy it. So Black families living in the North are just going to be really disadvantaged by the price dynamics in these segregated housing markets, either paying inflated rents or having to buy a house at an inflated price and seeing it lose value. And we argue at the end of the paper that these are quantitatively important effects compared to the wage premium for moving north. It's very striking. It's very striking. I think that's an important part of the paper to make the point that what we're seeing in terms of the housing market responses is, is actually mattering a lot for people's welfare and well-being. I'm a big fan, big fan of that part of the paper, too. <laughs> oh, like thank you, Jeff. <laughs> A meta point here is that we should all be attuned to general equilibrium effects, right? Or we should always think about housing markets, which yeah. I feel like is an easier sell today because there's been a lot of attention paid to zoning and the out of control increase in housing on the coast. And so people can't move to opportunity anymore because they can't afford apartments. And some of those same dynamics were playing out during the Great Migration. I think that's such an interesting point, like that the same sort of dynamics because of these sort of supply constraints at the time, which functioned through these super different means than, than what we think of today. But to the general equilibrium point, I mean, I think that's an interesting one at the time. And that from the narrative historical evidence, there's people who buy into these neighborhoods at inflated rates or face, you know, contract lending conditions that are, you know, just very exploitative, who then end up taking multiple jobs which if we want to think general equilibrium, unfortunately, I guess this is the 1940 census only has occupation rather than wages. Is that right? I don't know. No, the, no the, 1940 is the first one. Yeah. Is 1940 is this wonderful year where the census asks about income for everything. the first time. Yes. If that's a widespread phenomenon of facing these overcharging sort of rents because of the restrictive supply conditions or these high house prices, 
there being a labor market response and because of how segregated labor markets were, you can imagine that pushing down wages. And also, this is the Great Depression. So really, the response we see from Black families is not to take a second job. It's to live more densely. So a home that may have had two or three occupants in it whenever it was occupied by white families, we see instead divided into three apartments, each with having four people. Occupancy increases don't drive our results, but certainly there's evidence of people having to just take in borders or live with extended family in order to be able to afford these rents. It's just one of the many margins you can you can yeah. respond on. But if this is happening to you during the Great Depression, then this is like the really effective margin of adjustment. So Allison, I had said earlier that I was really excited to see this paper. And one of the reasons why was because doing some of my own reading, I got really interested in some of these questions and started working on a model and thought that that I couldn't write that paper because I'd have to do the quantitative work and then you guys have done it. And so it was, you know, really exciting. So now I can focus on the, the model and the storytelling part, which are more my speed. To that sort of question, I was just curious for you, what led you into asking these particular questions, this sort of evolution of your, your work on zoning and everything else? I was curious what led you into this paper in particular. Well, I guess in case there's any grad students listening, the honest truth is that it became possible to study pre-war American neighborhoods just as I was beginning my career at Pitt with the census enumeration districts, which is this tiny unit of geography that was only used internally by the census, that this became available and the full count census was available. And so it was possible to Randy and I spent years digitizing these neighborhoods where you could see exactly where people lived and how they moved around. And there just have never been data with neighborhood comparability to study what was going on in American cities before 1940 before. And so once we had that, then there were just so many, you know, Randy and I have been working on this project for years. No, there's zoning and there's white flight and there's, there are these price dynamics and redlining. There's just so many great but ultimately sad papers to write about how American cities became segregated by race. So it's been, I guess, a good opportunity, but every one of these papers just has a sort of sad feel to it, you know, to really understand our nation's history and in particular what happened to Black families who moved to the North to seek new opportunities. You know, it's just something that needs to be reckoned with. Um, I think you just answered the last question I was going to ask. So maybe I'll try to reframe it. As you alluded to earlier, you've been working with Randy for years on this series of papers documenting what's happening in cities before 1940. First of all, I think that's just like an incredibly important and exciting research agenda. And each new paper that comes out, I get more and more excited by the work that you guys are doing. I'm curious about the genesis of it. The one thing you just said is about data availability being a key factor and sort of starting this project. But I guess I'm interested in your own evolution because I know that you didn't start off as an urban economist and what that experience has been like. It's been great. I'm trained as an economic historian, and I began working with urban census data in my dissertation, studying how immigrants mobilized politically to vote. I became aware of the census enumeration district availability, actually, when I was giving my job talk at Pitt. And I just <laughs> saw my career unfold in front of me. And after I came here, I told Randy that I really needed an urban co-author because I saw the direction that this research was going to go. And I, I think it's one of a good example of having co-authors from different subfields in economics. Randy was like, I'd love to work on this with you. <laughs> so this has been great. 
Randy and I are interested in a lot of the same questions, but have very different training, very different perspectives. And conveniently, we had offices just next door to each other, so we just shout through the walls. And now they're not next to each other anymore. It's definitely been a good experience for me. I really like urban economists as a field. They are more into history than I think any other subfield of economics. And so it's just been a joy to get to know people in urban economics and present at conferences and find new co-authors. So for me, I would say a great thing. That's a great story. I love it. I love the example of your own little localized knowledge spillover (laughs) uh, between you and Randy. That's so great. Well, thanks so much for coming and sharing your work, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. And thank you, Devin, for joining us in our conversation this week. Yeah, so much fun. So now is the time in our show where we go around and give some recommendations or some stories that we think our listeners might be interested in. We call these our appendices. So Greg, what's your appendix for this week? So my appendix this week is a pair of books about housing that I happened to both finish in the same weekend. The first one's called Battle of Lincoln Park, Urban Renewal and Gentrification in Chicago by Daniel K. Hertz, who I believe works for the city of Chicago and has a public policy background. The other one's called Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. And that's by Connor Doherty, who is a reporter with the New York Times. So the Lincoln Park book is centered on the 50s and 60s for the most part. The, the Connor Doherty book, Golden Gates, is more current. It focuses on Bay Area, YIMBY politics, in the, mainly in the 2000s and 2010s. I mean, basically, it's quite present day, although it does trace, it does go back. They're very interesting books. I think, for me, having read them both basically at the same time, the Connor Doherty book is really about a market failure and how the political economy of high productivity, high demand areas is such that it's difficult to add housing supply in those areas that would have some prayer of making them affordable or at least more affordable, at least to middle-class folks. And I think that message is gaining resonance in many parts of the country. The other book is interesting. It's more historical because that's his method and also the time period. But it's also less obvious to me that a market solution would be useful in the 1960s era in Lincoln Park. There was a lot of violence going on at the time by defenders of the status quo, people who were resistant to racial transition, people who, it covers a lot. It's a little bit of a broader book. It gets into a lot of race issues and the exceptional power that homeowners have. That's sort of the common denominator, but I think the prescription emerging from the one book is a little bit clearer than from the other. I put down the, the Lincoln Park book thinking a little bit like, I don't really know what to do with this. You know, the first one I'm, I'm sold on Yimbyism, but I also feel like even today, it's probably not enough to just start building stuff. I do see it as a necessary solution, but not sufficient. Both great books. That sounds great, Greg. Can't wait to read them when I can have time to read books again. <laughs> I should mention that one of them was it was an audio book, so I sort of cheated there. When I said that, but, but I'm going to recommend a piece by one of our guests today. I'm going to recommend Devin's piece from a couple of years ago called "A Sense of Where You Are." That was published by Frank Essays a couple of years ago. I think it really nicely dovetails with Allison's paper today. I think Devin in the essay 
You talk about the series of interlocking crises that are affecting our cities, including gentrification, which we've all heard about in the news, and the disinvestment that has been going on for a very long time. So anyway, I think it's a great piece of economic history and a great piece of writing, and I highly recommend people go out and read it. Allison. So by way of apology, I have been quarantined with two children under five for the last few months. These children have not been going to school or camp. And so I've been thinking a lot about Alec, Pittsburgh, very common for houses um, in Pittsburgh, sort of the, the old houses from before the Second World War to have attics, which is not something I'd ever really thought of before until I had to spend all of my working time in one to hide from toddlers. Attics are good because they're on a different floor of the house. They're bad because ventilation and lighting isn't very good. And so if you drive around Pittsburgh, you'll see a lot of really sort of ill-advised and architecturally questionable attic dormers. And I understand those now. <laughs> Sorry, I look forward to reading books again as well today. Uh, <laughs> but until then, I'll just have to content you with observations about attics. Yeah. Do you have any sense? I assume you live in an older home. Do you have a sense of like what previous occupants might have used that attic for besides storage? Uh, the people we bought the house from just used it for clothing storage. There were many, many, many racks of clothes in the attic. It was kind of impressive. I think it was more just like a storage place. I don't think it had ever been used for any kind of human habitation prior to March 2020. <laughs> uh, well, I, I very much empathize with and sympathize with your current situation as a parent of two small humans myself. But again, thank you for, for coming on the show today. Yeah, and we'll read books again someday. I will okay. have interesting things I read again someday. someday. Yeah. <laughs> Devin, what's your appendix? Well, my appendix comes in two forms. It comes in a book form or in a podcast form, depending on where you're at. And so uh, I've been reading Isabel Wilkerson's book, Past, which just came out this month. I think it's a really useful read, and I think it's an interesting one. Some of the conversation today sort of centered around the fact that there's these separated housing markets, these segregated housing markets. You know, Allison's paper is really interestingly investigating how they interact with each other, like what these sites of interplay are. I think that the Wilkerson book cast is really exploring how life is separated in America as sort of a central element of understanding American history and its present and its future. And, you know, as an economist, as an urban economist, as a recovering economist, I guess, we, we often think about outside options and what people, can, what people can get if they walk away from a city. And those outside options are often just sort of an element of a model. I think about caste as being a useful way of thinking about the actual creation, the human hand in creating and, and differentiating those relative outside options for different of its peoples. And I think that the sort of price premiums that Allison is finding for Black renters are exactly the one market manifestation of that. And so I think it, it dovetails really nicely. I listened to a great podcast interview with Chris Hayes of Why Is This Happening with Isabel Wilkerson, where they get really into it. And so that really captures the book for those of us who are sort of time constrained. And I would say I love Daniel's book, Battle of Lincoln Park as well. Everyone should read that one. Don't skip the acknowledgments and that one as well, if you want to the prize. Also, yeah, sure, read my essay. <laughs> I enjoyed writing it. It's always lovely to hear people are finding it interesting. Well, wonderful. Well, thanks, Devin and Allison. I hope that we can convince you to come back again sometime. 
to participate in our show. So thanks for listening to our show. For Devin, Michelle Button, Allison Churzer, and Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Pals. Check the show notes for links to the articles we discussed on today's show. And let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. Greg is at Greg underscore Shell. I am at Jeff R. Lynn. Allison, I believe, has the best Twitter handle on Twitter. EconHist underscore all day. <laughs> Thank and, you. <laughs> and Evan is sometimes on Twitter. <laughs> at Devin underscore MB. So please share your feedback if you can. We would love to hear it. Densely Speaking is also on Twitter, uh, isn't it, yes. Jeff? Yes, Densely Speaking is at Densely Speaking on Twitter. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a second to rate the show as well. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants that do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated. Thank you.